Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur. And Scott, I don't know if you've heard, Pierre is back in town. I have, I have heard he's uh, back in town. Uh, Is he looking to sell a goat by any chance? Shh, don't mention the goat. Oh. <laughs> Ixnay on the oat gay. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite. Now, we are back this week once again. Cam, what are we talking about? We are talking about 1943's Tonight We Raid Calais. You know, Scott, in like the pantheon of movies we've tackled on the show, you know, you've sure, got sure, sure. Goldfinger, mm. North by Northwest. Uh-huh. The Born Identity. Mm. And I think, in terms of name value alone, Tonight We Raid Calais belongs alongside those ones. Well, when we mentioned it last week that we were tackling this film, I know that each and every listener went out and told their entire family to subscribe, and they all told their friends, and now we are the hottest podcast on the planet because we are talking about Tonight We Raid Calais. We are Calais hards now. Like, this is the official rebranding episode. Tonight we are. <laughs> Tonight we are. <laughs> um, it's an interesting one to talk about. I'm looking forward to diving in deeper with it. I think what I'll do is I'll give you all the lovely letterbox.com synopsis. And don't worry, much like this film, it's a short one. <clears throat> Tonight we raid Calais. A British commando is on a one-man raid to destroy a bomb factory in Nazi-occupied France. He must enlist the aid of French farmers to complete his mission. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, we should... I've mentioned this before. We should be keeping score of a few things in these spy movies over the years, of, like, trains and bathrooms and Nazis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess we can start the farm count now. Mm. Yeah, there's been a few farms. Farmers' wives, too. They seem to cut. Oh, yeah, They yeah. crop up a lot. 39 steps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Spy um, spy in Black as well. That's right, yeah. Um, which we forgot about fairly recently when we were talking about 1930s movies. And we were, like, ranking the 1930s movies we've watched. Um, and we totally forgot that one. I remember. It was when we were doing Lancer Spy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame, because actually it's a very good film. But we're, 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 we're passing away from the, the topic at hand. And for those who don't know, Calais is a small city, maybe it's a town, on the coast of France. Right. Uh, close to England. It's basically the place, it's one of the closest places to England in terms of like distance. So we, when you're crossing the channel, as we refer to it, as you go from Dover, which most people have heard to refer to Dover. If you haven't, it's in Moonraker, the book, not the film. Uh, and you go from Dover to Calais, basically. That's that's, that's okay. the quickest like way to get across. And spoiler alert, no one ever raids Calais in this movie. No, there isn't. It's like a town next door, isn't it? Like Picardy? <laughs> yeah. Red alert already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's probably a few issues there. Well, there, are, there is a raid, though, at least. And it does happen at night. And they mention Calais. And the people of Calais may have heard about it at some point. They hear the explosions and like, oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. Yeah. <laughs> Zoot a law. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we won't do any more French impressions, I'm sorry. Uh, but Cam, uh, I know you haven't seen this film. I could pretty much assume. 
Scott, I feel like I can speak on behalf of almost the entire world in saying that I have not seen Tonight We Raid Calais because, uh, you know, as I often do, I went over to Letterboxd to check out, you know, what's the reception to this one? There are 10 reviews for this movie online on Letterboxd. So that kind of speaks to how well known it is. Although, um, you know, it's streaming for free on YouTube. Very easy to watch. And actually, the print that um, is streaming is actually pretty good, actually quite good compared to some of the other ones we've watched and uh i'd recommend everyone go and watch this movie it's 70 minutes and uh it's an entirely painless movie to watch and i think we i think it should be the spy hard's mission to at least double the number of letterboxd reviews yeah actually there you go folks if you check out tonight we raid calais put your thoughts on letterboxd let's let's be the bastions of tonight we raid calais that let, let this be our new condor man i'm down for that yeah let's do it yeah, let's do it. But I definitely haven't seen this film before either, but it is a, a, a painless watch. We'll get into our thoughts in a bit. There'll be a link in the show notes below if you want to stop now and go watch the film and come back. By all means, do so. Cam, I'm curious, why did they choose to raid Calais? <laughs> I don't really know why they chose to raid Calais, but uh, mm. for a very like you know, simple, somewhat modest production. This movie went through like a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of gears and grinding to get to its finished form. Uh, mm. So it started with, it's so weird. This is the first time I've ever encountered this really where this movie has three writing credits on it. And when you look up two of the writers, they're like non-existent human beings. Are you saying it's fake news? Well, I tracked down who one of them was and I'll get to that in a second. But the other one, I have absolutely no idea who this person was or what they contributed. Pseudonym, maybe? Could be. Could be. Because they had, like, these two writers have one credit on IMDb and it is this movie. It's the same guy doing uh, three different jobs. He's just putting different names on it, basically. <laughs> so the first credit you'll see on this movie is Rohama Lee. And Rohama Lee was actually a 20th Century Fox secretary. And this was her first writing credit. And she has an original story credit on the finished film and it's her only work it seems in the motion picture world in terms of at least writing and initially she was supposed to collaborate with a writer named arthur caesar who was a more of a veteran guy who'd started in the mid uh, 20s his best known movie is i guess uh, 1934's manhattan melodrama which i haven't seen but it was a big star vehicle with clark gable william powell and myrna loy um but he just, like a lot of the writers who worked on this movie outside of the two mystery people, um, there's a lot of people that just cranked out endless amounts of movies that are mostly forgotten. You know, monster movies, war movies, westerns, that kind of stuff. This guy kind of falls into that. His contributions are entirely unknown, but Rohama Lee at least walked away with a story credit. Well, I think it's also, and I'm sure you'll get into this important sort of contextualized this film and when it came out and also what it's for because this is basically a war propaganda film yes exactly and i will especially touch on that when we get to the top movies of the year but mm -hmm. when i go through and i actually keep track of every movie i've ever seen on you know i have a word document that lists everything but i also have separate he's lying he's lying <laughs> i i can see the wall behind him he just scribbles it on his wall <laughs> all work and no play make cam a dull boy uh, it's more or less that it's the um you know the word perfect version of that but um i also have separate uh listings of everything i've seen per year what a nerd and 
I, I know. I also have one by director. It's pathetic. Anyways, if you go through my like by year and I go through the 40s, I have seen the least number of movies from the 19 from 1943. And you think mm. of where we were during the war, especially in North America for film production. You're going to have less films. A lot of those movies that came out were war propaganda films. And then like a lot of like B movies. So Universal Horror stuff was coming out at that point. And I did watch a lot of those. A lo- With Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Obviously. Why Jerry Seinfeld? The B movie? Oh, of course. Oh, God. <laughs> 2007, <laughs> one of the classics. We aren't uh, talking about penguins anymore, Scott. It's not DreamWorks sorry, time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like a lot of kind of like B movies. And like, if they aren't propaganda films, there's a lot of movies about feeling good, like real like morale booster type of movies, you know, like mm-hmm. Bing Crosby kind of stuff. Uh, it that's very much in the atmosphere at this point in time. So, like the idea of a studio cranking out like a propaganda war film at this specific point in time, incredibly common. And this is just one of the many. But they also um, apparently hired a writer named Kenneth Gamet, whose probably best known credit is the 1942 John Wayne movie um, Pittsburgh, which was a steel industry drama that I did watch. It's one of his oddities where it's like, how did John Wayne wind up in this movie? And it was that era where they didn't quite know what to do with him before he was really an iconic star. Uh, It's okay. But Kenneth Gamet, again, undetermined input, did not get final credit. Are you saying he didn't steal the show? He proved his medal with that one. (laughs) His name was forged with that film. He had an iron will about what he wanted in that industry. (laughs) I can't keep doing this, Cam. Please continue. (laughs) He smelted hearts everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh God. So the next writer who actually got a credit they brought in was Waldo Salt, who got his start in 1937 doing uncredited work on the Joan Crawford movie The Bride Wore Red. He did some contributions to the script for The Philadelphia Story, which was a all-time comedy classic with Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart, and continued on just doing a lot of studio work. And this was his follow-up to to a movie called The Wild Man of Borneo. I have no idea what that is. But he was someone who, as I said, made a lot of just, you know, B-movies. They're just studio programmers during this era. He was actually blacklisted in the 1950s during the Red Scare and was one of the many writers who... Someone named his name somewhere along the road, and he did not work for a long time other than, you know, kind of TV work. I'm, I'm getting blacklisted if that ever happens again, I'll tell you. Oof. All those communist parties you're going to? Yeah, oh yeah. I'm throwing them. <laughs> yeah, I'm throwing them. <laughs> so, yeah, Waldo Salt, not a great kind of like first half of his career. When he did come back, though, he had some very notable work. He won an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. He wrote Hmm. Serpico, the Al Pacino classic. He wrote Day of the Locust. And he finished his career with the John Voight drama Coming Home, which won John Voight a Best Actor Oscar and won him a Screenplay Oscar. And that was the end of the road. So Waldo Salt, tough years, but closed it out with two Oscars. I've always been told he's hard to find. (laughs) He always tends to stand with a lot of people that look a lot like him. That's the key. Mm. That Hmm. that is the key. That is the key. Uh... (laughs) I don't know why I'm doing stupid jokes today, but apparently that's my shtick. Yeah. And the other writer, L. Willinger, I have no idea who this person is. 
Cam, our great researcher, has completely <laughs> given... I mean, he gave us, like, I don't know, 20 minutes on... What's the most obscure film we've done? Lance the Spy, I'm sure, was filled full of trivia. But he's like, this film? Ah, ah whatever. Well, it's weird where it's just like you had, you know, at least I was able to track down who, who Rohama Lee was, but L. Willinger? Not sure. Not sure. I, I, would, I would actually probably guess a pseudonym. Yeah, it's that or it was someone they had just on the lot who had, like, because Rohama Lee was a studio secretary. So, like, maybe it was someone like that in a separate job title i've got it 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 so this guy's credited as a story right i reckon it's just a guy passing like the writer's room and waldo salt shouts out hey name a place in france and he goes i don't know calais boom that's your credit yeah or um rohama lee was paired with that other writer arthur caesar who Mm -hmm. according to turner classic movies they don't know what arthur caesar had really when it came to the finished product of this maybe he's l willinger i have no idea maybe maybe yeah Yeah. so when they announced this movie initially they had a different director it was a director named louis king who was basically like a b-movie director since the early 20s and he did some stuff like bulldog drummond uh, movies he did some westerns war movies didn't work out he ended up getting dropped off at some point and moved on to another project then they Mm -hmm. brought in edward ludwig who had actually had some notable stuff. Uh, he began his career early in the like 30s, did the 1940 version of Swiss Family Robinson, and then later in the like 40s onwards, did a whole bunch of John Wayne movies, including Big Jim McLean. Oh, connective tissue. Yep. And he jumped out too. <laughs> he did not wind oh. up doing the movie. Like the fact that Tonight We Raid Kelly, which you'd think would be something they would bash out really quickly, mm. it went through a lot of writers and multiple directors, which is kind of noteworthy because a lot of these movies we tackle, which are these more like 70 minute sort of programmers, they tend to be pretty cranked out pretty quickly. Well, yeah, you mentioned, well, we both talked about it being like a propaganda film, but this came out when you would usually have a double bill. Yeah, this would be, and this is the B movie. This is the one that plays first. It's slightly shorter, which is why it runs at seventy minutes. And these were cranked out pretty damn fast. And this is mostly set on a soundstage. Well, it was all set on a soundstage. There's no location work at all, as far as I can see. Maybe the bike ride at one point is yeah. maybe in a forest. But yeah, this is done on the cheap, quickly, or it should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they brought in director John Brom, who was born Hans Brom in uh, Germany. And he was a World War One vet. And he was the son of a comedian and theater director named Ludwig Braun. Uh, and he had had a successful stage career in Europe. And then when the rise of Nazism kicked in, he w- was forced to flee to England. He had had a early start in German film as an assistant director. But after he fled to England in 1934, he directed a movie called Broken Blossoms, which was a remake of a D.W. Griffith, Griffith film. And then moved to the U.S. two years later in 1936. And he was another guy, like so many of the people who worked on this movie, just a long string of credits and a lot of like B-movies, Westerns, war movies, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, he notably did a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, which I haven't seen in the 40s. I'd be actually interested in checking out because that's kind kind of a take on the Jack the Ripper story. Mm-hmm. And um, this was his follow-up. This movie, Calais, was his follow-up to 1942's *The Undying Monster*, which gives you a sense of the types of movies he was typically working on. Whatever was given to him, I'd wager. Yeah, 
And by the 1950s, he'd sagged into TV almost entirely, but he was very prolific in TV. Did a lot of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, Dr. Kildare, and ended his career with uh, runs on The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle. Oh, a little bit of spy connected tissue at the end of his career. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So we actually got some spy cred going on. Yeah, I wonder if his work ends up in one of the Man from Uncle films. Yeah, that's an excellent question, actually. I guess we'll find out. Hmm. We, we are tracking those down the road, the sort of the TV movies that did have theatrical releases. We will be looking at those. Uh, any more Calais for us, Cam? Yeah, so the actress Annabella, who has top billing in this movie, I wasn't mm-hmm. very familiar with her. Um, she was a French actress, and this was actually her return to the screen. She'd been pretty consistently working through the 1930s and ended up marrying actor Tyrone Power in mm-hmm. 1939. And it was around that point she took a break for um, a number of years until this one, so like four years. And um, her final credit before this was the MGM musical Bridal Suite. And then, you know, I initially was like, well, is it just because she got married? But it was a little more complicated uh, because of the events of World War II. She was very busy bringing family over from Europe. Um, Her brother and father stayed behind, and the brother was ultimately shot by the Nazis. So um, she was definitely um, quite busy during those years. So not just a new family life, but also bringing family over from Europe. I it I I don't think any of us could equate to what people were going through during those periods. So sure, yeah, and didn't have like a prolific career post this movie. Like she did pop up in movies here or there over the next couple decades, but was never really a um, big name star. I always appreciate someone that has the gumption to just have one name. Mm, I know, isn't that awesome? Mm. None of our names work though. Does anyone do that now? No, it doesn't work now. Zendaya, no. right? Zendaya is yeah. That's probably the that's like the current version. There's been a few, obviously. At Prince was a name. Well, Cher, yeah, Cher, yeah. That, although they're both musicians, but yeah, it's when I saw the IMDb, I was like, oh, fair play. Yeah, I think it should be a bigger start because you, yeah, as I say, you had the sort of the balls to be like, no, I'm just Annabella. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the 1930s, especially in like France, mm. that would have totally worked, and I think she was quite popular. I don't know that she ever quite became the icon over in North America. But yeah, anyone who has the single name, badass. Absolutely. Yeah. So this movie had multiple titles um, along the road to actually showing up on the screen. Because as we said, no one raids Calais, so it's a little Mm. confusing. I'll give you the three other titles. Two of them are very similar, uh, and then one is different. But I want you to grade them and see, at least in comparison to what we got, okay? So... Title number one, Project 47. Okay. What's 47 got to do with it? I don't know. Okay. It's, 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 uh, it's, um, it's provocative. It's a little generic, though. It sounds like it could be a sci-fi movie. Well, yeah, you would, you'd have no idea what you, you've got going into it. Like, at least with the word raid, you know, there's going to be some sort of action going on. Although, like, the sci-fi boom is really the 50s, so it this point in the 40s i don't know what people would think it was probably a docudrama or something yeah title number two project number 47 Uh, same (laughs) same same problems (laughs) and then the third title was secret mission secret mission is actually pretty good is it too generic or would it have been original then but generic now 
the latter. I think if you had Secret Mission back then, I don't think we have a film called Secret Mission. I don't think so. There probably is a film called Secret Mission that isn't anything to do with spy stuff, but sure, yeah. yeah. Um, that's again, though, you put that on like a little poster, and it is a B movie after all. Like, I mm-hmm. think that would that would bring in a few punters. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, Annabelle is there, whoever she is. I I think tonight we raid Calais is the more dynamic though. At least it's saying like it, it's putting its flag somewhere, even if it's completely and factually incorrect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the financials on this movie, I have no idea. I can tell you, it was not one of the top grossers of the year. I'm sure it did just fine. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't raid the bank. No, no, it did not. Uh, the top three for this year: number one, this is the army. Which was a World War One musical comedy directed by Michael Curtiz. All those Germans, and it was made pretty much expressly to raise U.S. morale, and proceeds went to the Army Emergency Relief. Well, that that makes sense. Even at the end of this film, they ask for U.S. war bonds. Yep, they're selling war bonds. So yeah, yep. Number two was for Whom the Bell Tolls, which was an adaptation of the Ernest Hemingway book. And it was starring Gary Cooper of Springfield Rifle fame. And it was set during the Spanish Civil War. I have seen this movie. Pretty good. And, you know, Metallica did the soundtrack for it. Exactly. Nailed it. And then number three was The Song of Bernadette, starring Jennifer Jones, which is about a young woman experiencing visions of the Virgin Mary based on a book. It was also a Best Picture nominee like For Whom the Bell Tolls. I have not seen this one. It's very long. And from what I've heard, it is very dry. I'm just going to keep playing For Whom the Bell Tolls in my head. Thank you. Yes. But when you go through and like look at that top 10 and beyond for 1943, there are so many military propaganda films or yeah. comedies set within the world of the army, you know, kind of like Abbott and Costello type stuff and all those sorts of mm-hmm. movies. Um, just a lot of war films and military based comedies. That's the kind of like the big trend. Well, they were churning these things out, and it was more about keeping morale up, wasn't it? It's not like a... You're not going to get deep, artsy films during a war. No, no. And even just, like, musicals. Like, I think The Hollywood Canteen was around this year, where it was basically just, like, stars hanging out with servicemen and performing musical numbers. Sounds like fun. Yeah. I've wanted to watch that movie, actually, for a while. I need to track it down. And, um... My only other note on this movie was that apparently Quentin Tarantino named this one of his five favorite war films after he discovered it doing research for Inglorious Bastards. Wow. This film is more famous than it deserves to be. That's interesting. There's a couple of times now where uh, Quentin's got involved in some of these lesser-known spy films. Also, uh, The Fastest Guitar Alive springs to mind, mm-hmm. which he used a track from in... The Hateful Eight. There's another one as well I think he's mentioned recently. Not to jump too far ahead, there was a whole bit in this where you have your protagonist hiding in a trap door in like a barn and the Nazis mm. like wandering around. And it made me think a lot about the opening of Inglorious Bastards. Wow. I hadn't put that together, but that could well be a shout out. I mean, he's, he mentioned, he cited the film. Yeah. So. It's, I mean, it's not a one-to-one comparison. No. Uh, it's a sort of scenario that could happen in many a war film, but it did pop out to me when I was watching this one. There's not many goats in Inglorious Bastards. No. No, unfortunately. It, I mean, it probably would have bumped up a, a star or two if it had been. Ingodiarius? Ingo? <laughs> How would that go? 
It wouldn't. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go. <laughs> it wouldn't go. It wouldn't go. It's terrible. Well, I think that wraps us up there, Cam. And I think I can just about hear it. Yes, Rule Britannia has started to play. And as such, we should talk about this film. More movies need to open like that. I love it. Every time Royal Britannia kicks in at the start of a movie, I'm like, I am ready to go. <laughs> Let's do this. Is that all the British Parliament? They're like our two favorite openers for th- this era of film. Now, if they were to screen this in British theaters, would you be like on your feet? Like you're the entire crowd instantly? It has to be. Yeah. And only chest. Yeah. 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 You start to weep uncontrollably. <laughs> and you're allowed to sit down for the rest of the film. Yeah. Basically, that's it, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go first on this one, if you don't mind. Please. I was not looking forward to watching this, not because I knew any information about it, but because uh, wartime propaganda films don't really do much for me. Uh, War films don't do much for me, particularly. Have we tackled other propaganda films? There's been a couple. There's been a couple. Um, We've had bits and pieces, like Ministry of Fear definitely had some elements. House on the 92nd Street is is yeah same sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple more out there. But I found this to be a super breezy watch. Like, it was not a trouble at all. I almost watched it twice back to back. Yeah. I had a little break and had some lunch in between. But it's got some great twists. It's got some interesting, like scenes it's got some interesting choices it does in the film that actually made me like oh i didn't think they were gonna do that it doesn't have a standout performance i would say it doesn't have like a big star making performance from anyone but it's got some good explosions some good sort of set pieces and yeah it just flies by a clip and i cannot complain with a spy film that does that i am i think pretty much in the exact same rowboat as you mm. um mm. i was surprised by this one because whether we've tackled them on the show or just in my own viewing habits, I have watched a fair number of propaganda war films of this period and some of them can feel so janky. Mm. A lot of scenes where they're like, little Billy, we're doing this for you. That sort of stuff. How stand the union? (laughs) Exactly. Like (laughs) that sort of stuff, you know, where it just is so cornball and cheesy that you just kind of roll your eyes. You can understand mm-hmm. how people would have been inspired by it at the time or felt something yeah. very strong due to what they're going through. But when you view it decades later, it just comes across as uh, pretty hacky. Yep. Whereas like this movie, it's very simple. And I mm-hmm. don't mean that as an insult because I think you can make things that are quite sophisticated that are very simple. But it is like very clean, efficient storytelling, Mm -hmm. very well delivered. And it kind of does what you want a good propaganda film to do, which is, (laughs) you know, rally you to its cause. Like this movie has a lot of like, we need to stand up against the Nazis. Like we need to be united as a community. And it sells that message, I think, very well. But it does it in a way where you're kind of inspired. You're like, oh, wow. Like, there's some very manipulative filmmaking techniques going on that, Mm -hmm. again, not a criticism. They're necessary in propaganda, but incredibly effective. And I agree with you when it comes to, like, performances. You know, Lee J. Cobb is one of those actors who's, uh, you know, working for decades after this. He's an icon, you know, 12 Angry Men, The Exorcist, On the Waterfront, one of the great character actors of his time. 
this is the not Flint films. The Flint film. The Flint films, of course. Yeah, I mean, this is not uh, going to wind up on his all-time top ten list. Mm. But when you have an old hand, or I guess a newer hand at this point, uh, Lee J. Cobb on the scene, it definitely adds a bit of gravitas. But you're right; like, there's no like big masterful performance at the heart of this movie. But just as like a work of like seventy minute World War Two espionage adventure quite effective quite effective well you keep saying quite effective as a propaganda film i'm worried that you've joined the u.s army (laughs) there's a shot at the end of this movie i'm just going to jump to it because i think it is a moment that is really i don't know that it comes across to people when they're watching it but it really jumped out to me which is the annabella character journey where you have her uncertain where her loyalty should lie and mm-hmm. at the end, she sends off her child with our hero and says, you know, that she's going to be with the fr- these other women resisting the Nazi occupation of France. And the way they are lit, there is like a spotlight down on this group of women standing on a rock over a cliff. They are like under mm-hmm. a spotlight. And the way are these, they are these kind of these shining beacons in the darkness. They're angelic. Yes, angelic. Like... That is incredibly effective. Like, that is just... Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful image. It sticks with you when you watch the movie. But it's manipulative in a way that maybe, especially in 1943, I don't know that audiences would have quite picked up on. I I agree that being a very good shot. I do just want to cut your legs out a little bit, Ooh, though. Because that whole scene left me with a bad taste in my mouth. Okay. Because Annabella's character, who we're just talking about here, who's part of this resistance to the Nazis that's just sort of formed by the end of the film. At the start of the film, you're told that she has she's looking after her brother's child. Yeah. Uh, who her brother and his partner have both died. And she's not a big fan of doing it. Mm-hmm. And literally, the first chance she gets, she hands that baby <laughs> over to him because he's leaving the country. I'm like, what a bad mom. <laughs> well, she's not the mom, though. Um, she's the aunt. She can be the cool aunt, though. <laughs> well, not particularly cool when she's like punting it off the side of Calais into a rowboat. <laughs> but she said, she said, bring that kid back when this is over. Yeah, when he's 18 and I haven't got to deal with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because she knows she's going to be fighting and this is no place for a child. She wants that child to be safe and to come back when she and these other farmer women have helped free the country. And there's no more diapers. <laughs> that too. That's too. That's too. No, that is is a great moment. I'm I'm just doing it for comedic effect. Of course. But I there, there's a lot of shots like that, and there's a lot of like praising of our lead as well, who who is a super adept spy who's just pulled out of his sort of military unit and sent on a spy mission. Uh, but like I I just love how you're thrown into it within five minutes time. Yeah. There is no uh sort of fat on this meat. It is super lean. Mm-hmm. you're literally given the exposition you're going to a thing you're going to find this base and light it up for the boys to drop some bombs on it off you go within the first five minutes he's already in calais yeah you compare that to lancer spy which we tackled a few weeks ago and i mean there's a lot of talky exposition setting that one up mm-hmm. this movie doesn't have time for that it just gets no. to it quick no it gets to it quick i did laugh at that very big opening sort of monologue from his sergeant sending him on the mission. And he says, all right, you're going to infiltrate France. And he gives him this sort of parcel of clothing. And he starts putting on like a beret and a shirt with horizontal lines on it. Yeah. 
And I just think like, this is, is this what everyone thinks French people dress like? I'll, I'll do you one more. Not only that, but I burst out laughing when there's like the duck boat that comes in as part mm-hmm. of the mission to drop him off where they do like this landing on the beach. Very freaky shot actually of the Nazis on the rocks in the dark. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Really well, like there's some really like fantastic cinematography going on in this movie. But they open fire, the boat takes off, and they leave him behind. He's dived off the side of the boat with a bicycle strapped to his back. <laughs> and then we cut to him, like, bicycling in that striped shirt down the street. And I'm like, now that, that is France. <laughs> it's a shame we didn't have, like, a baguette in, like, the basket at the front. That would have really sold it. But no, he's a local. He's totally a local. Well, it's like, red alert, there's a Star Trek Voyager two-parter set in a World War II holodeck program where that is something they do, where they dress the guy somewhat like that. It's an alien character, but he has the bicycle and the baguette in the bag. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I was curious. I was thinking to myself, after seeing like that's the sort of stereotypical French outfit, what is the British and Canadian versions of those outfits? Canada, I think, is easy. Britain's harder to pin down. So, like, Canada... I think it so much depends on where you live in Canada. Um, but I do think like flannel would be part of it. Yeah, that's um, why I have flannel. Probably the beard. Yeah. Um, maybe like... Even a, women. Even the women. Even the women. Uh, maybe a toque or, uh, you know... Sure. That's a, that's, a, that's a beanie for everyone else in the world, yeah. Um, probably jeans? Yeah, jeans are exclusive to Canada. <laughs> well, I, they're not exclusive, but I just think like that would go with the that would complete no. the look with the um the flannel. Like it's like a lumberjack esque. That's how I lumberjack chic. Yeah, and there are people that dress like that here in Vancouver, but I wouldn't say that's like the dominant look of Vancouver. But it's more the hipstery look of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, more so, yeah. Mm. But Britain, I think, is far harder to pin down. Like my initial gut reaction was like a tracksuit, but mm. that's not. I would actually say it's more like. Eastern European, if you were going to dress someone up like that, you've seen them in, in sort of tracksuits a lot in movies. Right. It's so what what is the British guy wearing? Do you go very pomp and circumstances? He's wearing like a three piece suit with a monocle and a bowler. Isn't it frequently a bowler? So is he basically becoming um, John Steed? <laughs> I, I suppose there was actually a movie recently, uh, Living, the Bill Nye film that he was nominated for Best Actor. Yeah. And the movie opens with like a group of guys getting on the train to go to work in Britain. They're all wearing, you know, bowlers and suits and all that, and they're getting on the, on the steam train. It didn't occur to me until like twenty minutes in that it wasn't set now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually hung up my bowler hat before I started this recording. Uh, good lord, you've known me how many years? I'm like, well, that's how Scott gets to work, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on his on his bicycle. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. I, I guess that's the British version of that then. Yeah, I don't know Like, if I have a go-to for how the British would dress. I guess you would have the best instincts for this one. And that's why, because I see people here, I went with tracksuit because we don't dress very very well. But then I, I don't really hang out in central London. So maybe I'm like a bad example of that. But then like I, I would have actually gone with what you said, sort of the John Steed look. I actually wrote that down in my notes. So yeah, maybe that's what it is. Quite well dressed. Especially in this time period. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, in this time period, yeah, that's what you go for. Yeah. Well, Cam, look at the time. It's just gone past midnight, so we should probably sell our plans to the uh, Nazis and talk about things that we did like with this film. I did like a lot of things. Firstly, is pace, which we've mentioned. I yeah. Think, I think it, 
it's hard to say that it's well paced. It only has seven minute runtime, but it, it there is no fat on this film. Mm-hmm. It flies by. It flies by. You said it quite on the show quite recently, where you've had like three hour films that are well paced that don't feel like three hours, and an hour and a half that feels like a nightmare to watch. I could watch it three times in a row and not get bored. I think. Yeah, it's a very economical storytelling. And that was mm-hmm. like the difference to me between it and Lancer Spy, where I thought Lancer Spy was okay. I didn't mind it, but um, it's a similar runtime. It might be 10 minutes more, maybe. I think, I think Lancer was about 10 minutes more, about 80 minutes. Yeah, but felt so much slower. Yeah. This movie just moves. It knows exactly what it needs to do scene to scene. Like, it really doesn't feel like there's any wasted moments. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like things are being dragged out. Even like, you know, you can have a scene where Annabella goes to like her... Is it, I think, Uncle or something, Maurice, who's more of like the cowardly uh, French farmer who doesn't want to get involved in this mission. Mm-hmm. But like you could say in a different movie, that would be kind of like a, a nothing scene. But yeah. it has purpose. It's establishing a different point of view. It's not prolonged. It sets it up. You get some good character dynamics, decent performances between the two actors. You move on. Every mm-hmm. scene feels like they knew exactly why they were shooting it. I wonder perhaps if it's because this movie probably didn't have a huge budget. And so it was like, use what money we have to make every scene count and get out. It, it makes perfect sense. I also wanted to to shout out just some of the interesting and smart choices this film makes. Interesting choice for me, one of the ones that jumped out was uh, our protagonist, who we haven't really spoken much about, uh, John Sutton, uh, playing a character called Jeffrey Carter, the, yeah. the our, our spy goes to visit his friend who he hasn't seen. He's masquerading as the Bonnard family's son who has actually died. Mm-hmm. And he finds out his friend's house is actually being lived in by two Nazis. So they have to talk in code with one another yeah. to give over information about where this warehouse is without sounding suspicious in front of the Nazis. And it's just played off completely straight. There's no like camera angles. You see them like, sweat pouring down their heads as there's Nazis walking or something like that. It is... You know what's going on. You figure out they're talking in code almost instantaneously. The film gives exactly the information it needs to give and moves on. But I was like, wow. All that information was dispensed in those few seconds. You know exactly who's on what side without any sort of exposition whatsoever. Well, it has that Hitchcockian suspense going for it where Mm. while nothing happens in that scene, like there's never a moment where the Nazis turn on them at any point. Yeah. You still know that like there is a uh, enemy in the room these guys mm-hmm. are talking code, and these two Nazis are just peacefully playing cards, but anything could go wrong at any moment. It's really effective. Like, this would make, like, a good theater moment, even. Yeah, and that was actually the moment I wrote down in Glorious Bastards in my notes with that sort of scene where they got the Nazis in the room, and but they're undercover as Nazis as well, but that's why I wrote it down. And the other scene that jumped out to me, and sort of the surprise I mentioned, was when the film decides to kill Mm-hmm. basically most of the main characters all of the bonnard family get captured along with some other people i think it's actually his best friend and, and his grandmother the, the grandette family yeah and uh it, they just line up on the wall and shoot them in cold blood in front of annabella i was like wow that scene is rough mm. because we've seen a lot of movies with you know firing squads or executions they are often very like trumped up and you know overly dramatic there's like a score that kicks in there's slow-mo they make it look very cinematic this looked brutal the way they're just like lined up they don't like make the guns sound like thunder claps going off it's just like 
oof. It is a rough moment. And I think Annabella does a fantastic job in how she plays this as well. It's not, like, histrionic in terms of her response. It feels so human. This is a movie that, like, a lot of propaganda movies, maybe I've never really thought about it, maybe that's why some of them don't work for me, where it feels like they are going for much broader human emotion in a way, like, it becomes, like, melodramatic. Mm. And that's more of that, little Billy, we're saving this city for you kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, here... All of her reactions and even the behavior of the individuals made sense to me. There was never a moment where I was like, this feels very movie-like. I mean, maybe in terms of some of the plot direction, because some of it's a little more, um, you know, it's a little more movie land than realistic. Sure. But in terms of how they emotionally reacted to things, I totally bought it. When you had these women who were saying, we want to, you know, unite and light our farms on fire to create this bullseye. For, the, for this um, munitions factory to get bombed, I understood the characters who wanted to do it and why. And I also understood, you know, Maurice for not wanting to do it. Classic Maurice. <laughs> Bastard. What a guy. What a guy. <laughs> what about you? Something you want, you want to mention you liked? Um, I would say, like, I think it's interesting. Annabella, I went into this movie thinking that, okay, this is an espionage film about the John Sutton Carter character. Mm -hmm. He is really more of a catalyst for this movie. Annabella is the one who very slowly emerges as the protagonist. Yeah. And you have him kind of stumbling on to her, basically fending off advances from this Nazi named Block, um, played by Howard Da Silva. And how he sort of like plants the seeds himself, but also within her family the idea of resistance against the Nazis and kind of introducing this argument of resisting now versus waiting to see and perhaps doing it later. And the way that those sorts of themes build up and ultimately affect the direction of her character journey, mm -hmm. I kind of walked out of this movie going like, "It this is appropriate Spy Hard's viewing. It is definitely mm -hmm. an espionage yeah. mission. But in some ways, it's more of a character journey set during a wartime you know, period about Annabella than a spy story. Yeah. I um I hated the Annabella character at the start of the film. Yeah. I did not I did not understand where she was coming from. She was fighting against who I thought was our protagonist, our, our British spy officer, and and sort of somewhat rooting for the Nazis. So like, well they're in charge now, so just you know, let it be. And her father's trying to teach her a lesson. Lee J. Cobb's character trying to teach her about like, you know, you'll never you give them an inch, they take a mile sort of thing and don't don't let them do it. And you slowly watch her understand the reality and the gravity of the situation that they are in in France and Nazism has occupied the country and start to see her take charge. And she is the uh, final catalyst for the actual mission's success. Much as it is our spy coming across that brings it to, to happening, it wouldn't have happened if she didn't rescue them from prison. Yeah, I mean, it's really about survival versus fighting for what you believe in and she's mm -hmm. a character who's very content to just survive be like yep. keep your head down you know i will essentially give block just enough to get me through the day so i can have a goat for example for my family but i'm not going to basically put my neck on the line and i think it is that moment where she sees her family being executed that it's like oh like i have nothing and i understand what's really at stake for the larger picture here and I really love that scene where she gets herself thrown in prison. 
mm-hmm. and she's you know hiding a shard of a mirror and the other villagers who are confined next to her are like hurling abuse at her for being a nazi sympathizer because she is putting on this act of siding with the germans basically and helping them and the way she twists that to help aid in the mission pretty compelling stuff no it's great and and what i found interesting especially from like the two watches i did is how i warmed to her throughout the film like i genuinely didn't get her position to start off with but like but her position is well explained because her brother died at mm-hmm. war and and so she's left with sort of charge of her niece or nephew, I can't remember the sex of the child. And so she's just like, she's beaten down by the whole thing. She doesn't want to engage in the war. She wants to just sort of exist within her little world, which is her family, and just get get by. And much as I don't necessarily vibe with that outlook, I can completely understand someone doing that in a situation as fraught as World War Two. And she's also seen how her brother's death has just broken her mother Mm. because the mother is in some sort of shell shock or something, some sort of trauma following his death where she's not all there. And actually that leads to a very good suspense moment where Block asks the mother to see photos of the brother because the agent is posing as the brother. Mm -hmm. And again, great suspense moment and also based in what is going on with our characters. So, uh, Fantastic. But um, yeah, Anna uh, Bella's character has also seen how the loss of someone can impact her family through the mother's reactions and how it's broken her. Mm-hmm. So that makes her that much more, you know, resistant against getting involved, I think. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack with the with the Annabella character. I want to throw a couple more quick likes in before I move over to dislikes. Firstly, any film that has grannies throwing grenades. <laughs> yeah gets a gets a tick from me i will also say about lee j cobb for those who's not sort of been keeping track lee j cobb plays sort of the m figure in the flint films cramden uh also playing a, a bit strange in this film because he is about in his mid-30s when he shoots this and he's playing about a 50 year old yeah although lee j cobb never really looked young no no, but it, it, interesting just noting down his age. But I think he gave quite an interesting performance. He he seems quite stoic and, and quite wooden, but I think that's a choice. Yeah, because Lee J. Cobb typically, I mean, a lot of the movies I've seen plays very like, almost like blustery or angry or intense. And he feels like very gentle in this movie. Mm. Quite calm and collected. Yeah, like he's very much, you know, the the father to this family. And it's kind of the strength of this family, but in a very like quiet, almost subdued way. And I think it's really interesting, his journey, because he's someone who's very determined to help the spy. Once mm. he finds out what he wants to achieve, he's like, okay, we have to do this. And it's not like a big get up on the old uh, soapbox and give the grand speech while the music swells. He just quietly does it. Yeah, he just he just gets on with it. I mean, it's... Uh... I'll save that for the dislikes, actually, something I do have as a dislike in regards to that. But I just like that sort of no-nonsense attitude towards getting it done. But I think he, the the message I got from his character is that he understands the gravity of the situation they're in and mm-hmm. how easy they all could be snuffed out, and he is in this yeah. film. The consequences yeah. are, in fact, true, and he does die in this film. And I just appreciate that sort of grasp of what's going on and he is fully aware of the world that they live in which is actually a nice juxtaposition from his daughter Mm -hmm. it is yeah 
So something I really liked about this movie was, as we said, this is not a big budget movie. No. This is not um, one of the grand scale war films we are going to tackle on Spy Hards over the course. This is not, um, you know, a Where Eagles Dare, for example, which has money to burn. Of course. Uh, yeah. This movie has very minimal action. But when it's done, it's really effective. Like, it looks fantastic. Whether it is that bicycle chase, which I was like, wow, we've never had a real bicycle chase on Spy Hearts before. But it's brutal where he's being pursued by these two patrolmen and rides ahead, sets up like a tripwire to knock them off the bikes. And I was like, okay, how is this going to go? Is this going to be kind of like cheesy kind of stuff? You know, and it quickly turns into him like tripping them and then stabbing them to death. And I was like, whoa, like it had... Brutally stabbing them as well. Like, yeah. And it really gets in there with the shot. I thought it was going the exact same way. I thought it would be like a like whoop yeah. when they get like, knocked off the bike. But nope, it knocks them down and they just stone cold kills them. We will get you next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that, that blew me away. And also, again, talking sort of the budget and how they use it, you've got to think like the... The bombing sequence at the end, the actual raid, mm-hmm. is very well done. I know it's a lot of like composite shots and all sort of put stuff in, but like it looks great for what they're clearly working with. Not a lot of money. Yeah, it looks really cool actually. And when they're lighting the fires, even just around the facility, mm-hmm. it looks fantastic. But um, there's the shot too where you have those RAF planes overhead dropping the bombs, and you see the farmer women on the ground all look gazing up, like holding their hands up to kind of like block out the light and that is a real like that's a kind of a classic propaganda technique right there where it is the nice nice little hero shot it's the hero shot but they are also like staring up at the heavens and like blinded by the light of these heroes coming down basically look look at them in their bowler hats coming to save us (laughs) yeah and also that moment i mentioned earlier with again very small little action moment but the nazis sitting by the the shore when the boat comes in and opening fire and the boat as well like it's a big prop they've made mm-hmm. for that they there are men on that boat and it is there is water and sand it, the boat does beach and un, try to unload its soldiers before pulling back again yes yeah. it's, it's all very well done it is not the opening of saving private ryan but no nope. it has impact imagine that with one boat on a very small scale like that's what it looks like yeah yeah but it yeah. gives you a great sense of just its scale through minimal means you know, and mm-hmm. this is a big budget movie I'm going to reference, but kind of applies to what I'm talking about. You think of the movie Mad Max Fury Road, and there's that sequence sure. where they're going through the swamps, and there's like two dudes, I guess they're dudes, I don't know what they are, but in those like kind of like bird suits walking through the muck. Mm. And it's like you have no idea what those guys are, but it just like creates a whole world as to what they are. Yeah. And it's just like blink and you'll miss it. Or even like, uh, I'll give you another example, another big budget movie, <laughs> unfortunately, but the big uh, Dippy the the skeleton from one of our dinosaurs laying in the sand in the start of Star Wars, mm. you know, on Tatooine, where you're like, I don't know what that is, but that is a massive skeleton. What could that be? And it just creates this whole world. And I think this movie does it on the cheap. I, I got to tip my hat to you, Cam. For remembering the name of the Diplodocus from <laughs> One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. A film we covered over two years ago at this point. Well done. I don't know why I remember the things I remember. <laughs> hey, the, she's back in the Natural History Museum now. When you, If you do come over later this year, I'm going to take you to see the dinosaur that went missing. Oh, definitely. Photo op. 
It has to, has to be. It has to be. And another scene just popped in my head while we're sort of lavishing this uh, film with praise, where, where Carter, our protagonist, is sort of captured by the Germans for not having his papers. And he very quickly learns the dynamic between sort of the German Nazi leader and his sort of subordinate block, I think you said the guy's name was. Yeah. Uh, and plays them off against each other in stunning fashion in the space of about three minutes. I, I, you sit there going, wow, that is so well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like that the, especially the primary villain uh, was like someone who was intelligent mm-hmm. because a lot of propaganda movies will play like the Nazi characters are just kind of like dumb thugs. And that actually makes yeah. them less scary. It's the fact that mm-hmm. the guy who's leading the investigation in this one and kind of overseeing this territory, he's very smart. He is someone who could have them all killed in a second. And we see that mm-hmm. he will, is willing to do that. And that actually makes the threat that much more, I think, omnipresent throughout the movie. Which is kind of like, I think it was Operation Finale, where they had, was it Munich Edge of War, which is the one I'm thinking of. Ben Kingsley. That was Operation Finale. Yes, much like that film, it just showed that the Nazis weren't just dumb thugs. They had a plan and usually quite smart at executing it. Yeah, because you're trying to get across the severity of the threat they pose. Mm-hmm. And if you have the head of the Nazis in this movie, like the block character, who's just kind of an idiot, like yeah. that doesn't establish to the audience like why they're dangerous. They're not foreboding at that point because it's just like your protagonist is running rings around them. Yeah, they're cartoon villains, basically. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spyhards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spyhards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Well, Scott, we're going to talk about a classic disaster movie about a chunk of space rock hurtling towards Earth with catastrophic consequences. That's right. We're going to talk about 1979's Meteor, starring Sean Connery. We'll see you in the bunker. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Well, let's mosey on over to dislikes. Yeah. I'll start us off. And this is a nitpick, if anything, because I think if I applied this logic to a lot of other films, they would all come up the same. But this film is exceedingly convenient. Mm, Yeah. Everything basically falls into the lap of the protagonist. He arrives in Calais. He immediately finds this barn. He immediately finds the guy he's meant to contact, who happens to have a dead son, who happens to look just like him. And everyone sort of bides it straight away. There is almost no objections to their plans. Yeah, that it's not a big dislike, but it, it just jumped out to me that it. I imagine if this film was remade now for some strange reason, there would probably be more complications along the way. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, and like he does have the one contact he's supposed to meet, who is like dead or something when he gets there, but that is like paved over real quick, like instantaneously. Um, I guess my dislike is 
kind of like yours and maybe is expanding on that i think as a spy movie this movie kind of is lame like the spy story isn't really that interesting and it's as you said very convenient it's like yep we've got to go set this up and basically create a um a target for the bombers it's really the story of this community working together to achieve this goal to help begin a liberation. Mm. I don't know that when it comes to a film about a World War II espionage mission, his story is necessarily that compelling. Well, I think you said it best earlier. He's the catalyst, not necessarily the protagonist. Yeah. But then in terms of analyzing spy movies, we've done a lot of films where spies are on the outside, not necessarily the inside of the core story. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to rake this film over the coals for that. But I will say that I mean, his mission is a success. Yeah. But it's not a success because of him. No, no. It's entirely about um, empowering these people he meets. And he's like, he's kind of like gone by, by the end. It's, th- it's their fight. It's, you know, mm. these women, you know, who are, live in this village who are the ones who are going to carry on the fight. He's basically there to essentially give them all the kind of the motivation to do so and get out of there. Um, so like, I, I thought the lead performance by John Sutton was functional. Mm. He actually reminded me a lot of Terry Quinn, but if Terry Quinn had hair, I didn't get that. That's a weird one. He just kind of looked like him to me. I'm not going to say it's a one-to-one, but uh, they looked kind of similar to me. Um, sure. But he doesn't have a lot of charisma on screen. Like, N- no, I think that there's a chance that, he's the lead of this movie just because pickings are kind of slim for lead actors at this point in time in the 1940s. And, um, you know, that may be part of the reason he's fine. He gets the job done, but like, that's why to me, like the spy element of this one feels almost like a background element of why this movie's effective to me. I want to note though, John Sutton has a credit, that will mean something to, uh, I think, people who follow this podcast. I know him from a lot of um, his B-movie work, like in Return of the Fly and The Invisible Man Returns, things like that. But he was an uncredited narrator for the movie Five Fingers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. The uh, knock list award-winning five fingers that is correct yeah so he did those opening sections or whatever where it would explain what's going on with british parliament and whatever perfect the best openers all they all <laughs> have british parliament in it yeah i i i find it fascinating that this film hasn't got many dislikes like i've got a couple of other little nitpicky ones i mean, I said off the top of the again there's not a lot of star power here there's not i wouldn't say there's a performance that really jumps through but then that could also be a positive in a way because no one is like, hogging up the screen and it's really about telling the story. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a stage play in that sense, whereas it, it, it's more about getting that story across. So you could take that either way, folks, if that's a good or a bad thing. I wrote down the budget is clearly a bit low at times. There's a lot of sort of the same set being reused for certain things or like things shot at certain ways to cover the fact that it's only actually a, a, like a few inches of background. Yeah. Uh, but that, again, I'm not going to hold that against a propaganda film during World War Two, And I just want to mark the film down a little bit for having a lead actor who wants to get rid of a baby so bad she's willing to punt them off the side of France. <laughs> um, 
Well, maybe there's a bit of a conversation just about like the idea of like these propaganda films because uh, mm. we've done a couple. I'm sure we'll have many more in the future. Oh, I'm sure. But it's like this movie is, I think, very successful propaganda filmmaking. Um, and it's the question to me is, does this play to an audience now? Or do you have to look at it as, like, do you need the historical context to appreciate it? Uh, I think you need to qualify that question. By historical context, do you mean you need to know that World War II happened? That this movie is coming out during World War II and is being used to not only, you know, sell war uh, war bonds, but also to basically raise the morale of those at home, but also, you know, the soldiers who are heading off. I think some of the other propaganda films that probably helps to sort of contextualize it. I think this one stands on its own. Yeah. I think this is a very efficient film. It hasn't it's not all singing and dancing. It's not glitzy, it's not glam. It's it's a story being told and it's told well. Mm-hmm. I don't think it needs to have like the proviso, the, the sort of like asterisk next to it saying, "Oh, but it's a propaganda film." Right. That that would be my take on it. Well, let's throw it over to sort of final notes and any questions or anything like that we have. A couple of things I've got beating around. Firstly, it was great to see that truck get blown up with a bunch of mannequins in it at the end. Yeah, That was fantastic. I think that was all scale, but it still looked great. I mean, yeah, like that, again, minimal uh, action in this movie, but they picked their moments. And yeah. you have him just kind of like, you know, uh, the Carter character just like running around this factory. You get a truck full of dummies come rolling out. Boom. So satisfying. It's like the opening of GoldenEye where he's like blowing up all the people with like you know, running from them at the same time. Why do we not blow up dummies anymore? It's so cool. I think with like 4K, 8K, people can just tell they're dummies. But it does look great in these older black and white films. Yeah, I guess it's like that moment with the helicopter in Tomorrow Never Dies now. Where when you watch it in like 4K, you're like, oh, oh. Shut your face. (laughs) Besmirching the name of uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. This film also features a water wheel, uh, which I got a little flashback to Long Kiss Goodnight. Oh. And also the eagle has landed. I was going to say eagle has landed. I was surprised you uh, led off there with uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. I think I've watched that one more recently than Eagle Has Landed, so that's why it jumped out to me. No one was strapped to the water wheel. and Actually, no one was killed by the water wheel either, which is what happened in those two films. How far away do you live from the water wheel in The Eagle Has Landed? It's like a famous one. It's the Black Sabbath album one. It's quite, it's quite nearby. It's quite nearby. I think it's about an hour and a half drive for me. Hour and a half. Okay. You need to drive there and like get in the water and get lifted up by it. Yeah. Jump in. Uh, yeah sure i won't get arrested for that at all would you win like the darwin award if something went wrong (laughs) oh for sure for sure for sure local man tries to recreate (laughs) moment from tonight we raid calais (laughs) local scratching heads (laughs) asking what is tonight we raid calais (laughs) and and this isn't calais (laughs) you're in the wrong country son uh, I did have another question. Is is this the uh, Cramden Flint prequel we always wanted? Oh, that's a great one. I mean, it's not really because things didn't turn out so well for Cramden in this movie. 
Well, you know, he turns out to be a master spy. Maybe he was wearing armor, and when everyone drove off, he crawled away. Perhaps. Although that does now, like, raise the question. When it comes to the Flint universe, Cramden probably was the in Flint World War II. universe. <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> the FU. <laughs> the FU. Cramden probably was in World War II, right? Oh, yeah. He definitely would have been in World War II. Yeah. When do you think Zowie started? I'd forgotten Zowie existed until you just said that. I, it's got to be like the 50s, like the NATO stuff. You don't think they started during World War II? Well, actually, I, I should correct myself. NATO was, I think, late 40s, post-World War II. Anyway, uh, no, I think it was post because that's where a lot of like the, like uh, all these sort of treaties were signed around post-World War II. So was that like, you know, the Cramden, I was going to call him Ralph Cramden, who's like a sitcom character from the Honeymooners, I think. It hasn't got a first name listed on the thing, so are we just going to call him Ralph Cramden from now on? No, no, because that's a famous sitcom character. Um, but Cramden, I quite like Ralph. do you think like that was his job, like out of World War II was being basically, you know, uh, set up to take over as this like security chief for Zowie? Well, I think he just rose through the ranks really quickly post this. I think he was actually a farmer until this point, but he saw his family get killed. He's like, I'm going to take it to the Nazis. In the space of like two years, because I think this is 43 before the war ends, he he rises up through the ranks and then he basically works as a spy post-World War II for a few years. They set up Zowie. He raises, rises to the top of Zowie and then through the 60s, he's working with Derek Flint until Flint retires and then our man Flint happens. Wow magic i i've just written the backstory for a character no one asked for a backstory for <laughs> mr mr ralph cramden everyone that's glorious um something i had listed just as a note this movie has some terrific use of shadows where you have the scene where carter confronts annabella like in the barn and it's like this giant shadow of him over top mm. like looming over her while he's telling her you know, you need to stand up and fight, you know, that sort of stuff. And then, like, later you have, like, the Nazi silhouettes, like, looming over um, looming over them when they've been arrested. Mm -hmm. And, again, very simple stuff. Whether it is fog, which they use at key moments in this movie, whether it is shadows, you know, the cinematography here, they know they don't have a lot of money. So they're making this movie look as good as they can. I don't think the, the shadows necessarily jumped out to me too much, but I know exactly what you mean. They're using their money wisely. Like, they, they obviously shoot on, like, a set in Hollywood somewhere for, like, the streets of, of Calais when they're walking, or Picardy when they're walking around. That's not a real town, I'd wager, but it, it looks like it's a whole fully fleshed-out town. They've shot it well. They know what they're doing with this film. Scott, I wish I'd looked up the cinematographer before we started this episode. Oh, no. Because it is Lucien Ballard, uh, for those who don't know, uh, worked on a few movies like, oh, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. He did The Wild Bunch. He did The Getaway with Steve McQueen. He did True Grit, the John Wayne uh, film. He was a pretty fantastic uh, cinematographer um, who worked in all sorts of, uh, you know, types of movie, but... Uh, Definitely some pretty uh, impressive uh, films to his credit. Also, The Party, the Peter Sellers comedy from Blake Edwards. Um, yeah, I mean, this guy has quite an impressive resume to his name. Huh. I was just looking him up on IMDb. I was going to say it must be quite an early film for him, but he actually started working in 1930. 
1930, bang on, actually. So he'd actually been working as a cinematographer for ooh, 15 or so years by this point. Yeah, and he actually worked with the director um, for on a number of movies, like uh, The Undying Monster is listed there, Bomber's Moon, The Lodger. So, uh, oh my God, he did Laura? God, that's one of the all-time film noir classics. Well, there you go. Uh, one of the many takeaways we've had this week. Number one, Calais. Good movie you should watch. Number two, Cinematography by Lucien Ballard, who was a pretty fantastic cinematographer and was nominated for an Oscar for the 1963 movie, The Caretakers. Well, that's a lot to take in. Uh, he clearly did a good job with this film and knew what he was doing and obviously won awards to that end. Cam, do you have any other notes for us? Well... Maybe I'll just like mention another shot of his I thought was really cool and not the sort of thing you typically see in these kind of more tossed together kind of B movies, which is the mm -hmm. shot when he um is hiding up top in like the hayloft. Yeah. And the our spy, and he's looking down at the family, and then they are looking down through a trap door at the goats below. Mm -hmm. And that is like three planes going on there. And it looks so cool. And I made a note of that one when it was happening, just thinking like, you don't normally see shots this ambitious in these types of movies. Do you wonder if in these days they were just sort of left to their own devices and not given notes by the studio and they just thought, let's make an interesting film. And they just went for it. Yeah, I don't think there was a lot of notes, probably. Yeah. They were like left to their own devices and just decided to make a good film one day. Where it's like, if you have people that are really talented, they'll elevate it. Mm. but they have their kind of journeyman team and when you have someone like lucy and ballard like the fact that i brought up so much through this episode how there's so many shots that really stuck with me mm. obviously they had a very 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 strong cinematographer you know the director as i said went in and did mostly tv for the rest of his mm. career so maybe not necessarily the great directorial voice but there was someone who was very visually adept behind the scenes well i think before we look at like the knock list i did have a, a final question maybe just to discuss because we've, I suppose, chastised this film, but discussed that this film hasn't really got a star behind it. Like, it, even even necessarily a star performance, but there's not really a star name attached to it in terms of actors. If you were to fill out the cast of this film for people who were winning Oscars around this year or around this time, do you think this film could be improved from having bigger names? I don't think this movie's better if you have John Wayne playing the um the spy because john wayne mm. didn't uh, serve in world war ii uh, he actually stayed home and shot uh films during this era so he would have been available for this type mm. of movie um this is not within his budget level he would have been doing bigger budget stuff but i don't think this movie is better with him in the lead because i think if he's in the lead the anak bella character isn't as empowered because the movie's about john wayne but what if you had say like a bigger female actor in the lead I, I, I'm not chastising anyone's performance. It's more of a case of like, this film, clearly, we said at the beginning, 10 reviews on Letterboxd. No one knows this film exists, basically. It's, uh, it's like five critic reviews on IMDb. I say critic loosely. Basically the same level of people, us talking about it, like they have blogs. So not it's not like a Roger Ebert style people reviewed it or anything like that. I'm sure it did get some reviews in the press yeah, yeah. at the time. But yeah, it, it's, it's forgotten. I'm sure if it had had a major star, it would have had a better legacy attached mm. to it, whether it was a John Wayne or I don't know 
you know, pick your poison for actresses working at the time who could have played that role. Um, you know, Myrna Loy even would have been, I think, interesting as Annabella. Um, but I mean, if that's the case, does the star power override the message? Because this movie is very much about a message. It it could be entirely that. It could be. I I don't think you could improve on it that much. Yeah. To be honest, I think I. So I'm not saying it's a flawless film. No, 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 it, not at all. I mean, I think it exists in probably the purest form, in terms of what it was intended to be with mm. this cast and this team. What's well, like you look at like TV shows. You could take a script of a very popular TV show, pump $20 million into it and make that into a movie with big names. Are you improving that script? Yeah. I don't know you are. I think you're just putting big names behind it and maybe you'll get a better maybe a better performance or two in the scenes. But is the, the better portrayal of that script still on the TV show? Or even with like horror movies, they typically cast people that are mostly unknown because they want you to identify with the people going through the experience on screen. Whereas if you suddenly cast Ben Affleck as the lead of, you know, a new horror film that's come out, it's tougher to identify with him because you have all this mm. baggage of knowing his personal life and all the movies he's made before and all that sort of stuff. Um, with this movie, they're talking to the people who are fighting in World War II and also the people who are supporting those that are fighting in World War II and also, you know, sacrificing at home. The message is to them. And I think, like, star power would get in the way of that. Like, this movie is making clear statements to those people, to the audience. And also, you talk about remakes, or at least I was talking about remakes. You think of something like The Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. Now, I know we went down and say the, the remake is the better film. I still personally prefer the 30s version. Mm-hmm. And that 30s version is full of people who do, who weren't very big. Yeah. Even Peter Laurie wasn't a big name over the over the pond at that point. No. Um, and I would say that's probably the purest form of that story. But then you put Doris Day and James Stewart in it. It's a much bigger film. More people have seen the remake, I would think, out of the two of them. Yes. And, and we put that on the knock list and not the first one. But still, yeah, I would still... And I think that's probably... Maybe that's what we're looking at here. Yeah. And I mean, we will encounter that over many spy films that I'm sure have in the past where it's the star-driven stuff and then there's the uh, the stuff where it's relying more on the story and it doesn't want you to get distracted by stars. And also we've got a few on our list of films who are like there's been a, a foreign language version done and then and the Hollywood version done afterwards. Like La Femme Nikita mm-hmm. has had its own copies and things like that. Like That's a one that springs to mind, but there are other examples on the list. That is actually a good one because uh, Bridget Fonda, who starred in the remake, um, was very much like the 90s it girl when she's mm. getting that movie. Yeah, which I, I've seen La Femme Nikita. I haven't seen the remake, but we'll we'll, we'll get to those. Oh, I'm the opposite. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, I've seen the remake. Oh. Oh, we'll, we'll have a coming together of, uh, of, of minds for once, which is nice. Yeah. But let's, let's get to it. Knock list time. Did Tonight We Raid Calais raid our hearts, Cam? This is difficult in some ways because I have to acknowledge that this is like very effective at what it's trying to do. I think where I'm like struggling is like kind of what I've outlined in the dislikes, which is that I think in terms of like a spy story, I don't think it's very strong. Like if I'm telling people you should be checking out movies with like 
rock solid spy storytelling. I, I I don't know about this one. It's like as you said, it's very convenient. It's more about conveying a message through the other characters. I don't know that that really earns it a place on the knock list. I also don't think we don't give star grades on this podcast. This would not be getting like a five star star grade out of me. You know what I mean? No. It's a, it's I'd say it's like a three, three and a half. Yeah, like it's a very like modest film that is successful. Mm. It does everything it could do very well. Yeah. Mm. It it is tough. It is tough. Are you going with no then? I think it's like a mild no for me and it's the sort of thing I, I kind of struggle with because we're going to have so many propaganda films mm. on this podcast. Like, are propaganda films, just by virtue of being propaganda films, not worthy of being included in the knock list? I don't think so. No, but no, I, no. I have to believe there's versions of it that are more artistically impressive than this one. Like, this one has yeah. shots, but in terms of its storytelling, I can't say that I was, like, blown away by the storytelling. Oh, I get that completely. So you're going with no? I think it's, yeah, like it's a very affectionate no, but it's a movie I, I really, I hope people check it out because it is not a time investment. It's easily accessible. And I think at the very least, you'll walk away with some appreciation for what would have been a very routine assignment at this point in time. Yeah, and and you would have seen an interesting story. Yeah, and you would have seen a lot of movies like this. Yeah. At this time. Yeah. I am I'm going to go with no but it is very much like on the cusp of a yes. I find it interesting something I I was looking at this earlier today when I was deciding on my answer though I sort of intrinsically knew it was a no because I really enjoyed watching this film. Mhm. Like I had a really good time with it and I recommend people go out and check it out. Is it one of the greatest spy movies of all time? Is it need to see? official classic knock is it making that i don't know it if it will but i think looking at the list of films we've covered recently we've had a lot of like what i would call chalk and cheese right like polar opposites of each other we've had like smash hits like skyfall and casino royale uh, and then come back with films that are like dross or just like not fun or not interesting and like they're either smash hits or they're not at all this for me, falls into the camp of a film I really enjoyed, but I don't think it was quite good enough to make the knock list. And a, a very early example of that is The Man from Uncle. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very mid tier movie that is interesting, which we yeah. often don't encounter. You know, we are always kind of looking for that top tier that really yeah. grabs us and carries us. But in the best of cases with studio filmmaking, there is mid tier movies that you enjoy that you don't necessarily. Uh, you know, carry with you the rest of your life, but they offer enough interesting elements that they keep you engaged. And that's kind of where I sit with this one. When we discovered um, Five Fingers, yeah. which neither of us had heard of at the time, that felt like a revelation when I was watching that movie. I mm-hmm. didn't feel that way with this one. I just really appreciated what it was achieving. Yeah, I had a good time with the film, but it didn't like bowl me over completely. I think it's something else like The Spy Who Dumped Me, which I had a really good time watching. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend people check that out too. It's not good enough to make the knock list, but it was a good time. Uh, and there's a lot of Bond films that sort of fall into that compartment too. Like I'm a big fan of, I mentioned earlier, Tomorrow Never Dies, we mentioned that film. Yep. It didn't make the knock list, but it's one I would always reach for. It's a very fun film to watch. It, And I'm not saying this is on par with Tomorrow Never Dies necessarily in terms of quality, in terms of filmmaking quality. I'm not sure that they're the same, but that's the sort of 
the feeling I have about the two of them. So no, it's a no. But I, I think Cam and I would agree you should watch this film when you get a chance. And if you have an interest in sort of understanding World War II propaganda films, I think this is a good one to watch. Yeah, and it's like 75 minutes, guys. Like yeah. it, 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 I said it at the start, breezy is the word I used. It's breezy. And you won't feel as like icky as like watching Triumph of the Will or something like that, where it's like... Or, or Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. <laughs> I don't know that those two belong in a similar plateau, but okay. <laughs> well, I've only seen one of the two, and I didn't feel very good about watching that. So, oh, well, <laughs> Triumph of the Will is the Lenny Riefenstahl um, Nazi propaganda film. Oh, <laughs> uh, don't don't watch that either. Yeah, but maybe they're not the same. It's incredibly influential. They've used shots from it in Star Wars, even like it, as a work of filmmaking. Oh. Unbelievable, but you feel unclean when you're watching it. I, I think I'm back to Goldfoot too again. Yeah, that's that's accurate. Yeah, Franco and Chicho. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oof, oof. Well, there you go, folks. Two no's, mild no's, I will add. But as such, tonight we raid Calais is not making the knock list. Good time though. Had a good time talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Cam, what are we talking about next week? Well, we mentioned Quentin Tarantino earlier in this episode, mm. and next week. We're going to tackle another movie that has a Quentin Tarantino connection. We are going to look at the final Matt Helm vehicle, The Wrecking Crew, which, of course, gained a certain amount of fame due to its appearance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Absolutely. Unfortunately, this is not set in the year 1966, but it is a Matt Helm film, so I am engaged and looking forward to it and looking forward to sort of rounding off the Matt Helm story and seeing if he finishes strong because... uh, First, we didn't make the knock list, but it's all still to play for in the final film. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Wrecking Crew and join us next week. If you want to show your support for Spy Hearts, please consider joining us over on patreon.com slash spyhearts. We've got a bunch of different options there where you can help support the show and unlock some really cool content, some bonus content as well. And also... By all means, leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast if you like what you hear or even if you don't. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, as always, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you'll find me paying the penalty for stealing a goat from an agricultural inspector. <laughs>